What's up, everybody? Dan Urban back again for more Couchside Judges, along with my podcast partner, Scott Fontana. We're all set to talk about Saturday's UFC Fight Night card that nobody was looking forward to, yet ended up delivering some fun fights and fast finishes. Scott and I will discuss Cynthia Calvillo's win over Jessica I in the flyweight main event, which gave us a new contender on the path toward champion Valentina Shevchenko. We did have a small disagreement with how one of the rounds in that fight was scored, but on the whole, the judges were strong again at UFC Apex. However, they did have a pair of closely contested split decisions to weigh in on, and Dan and I will offer our thoughts on whether the right men came away with victories. Plus, we'll examine the prevalence of 10-8 rounds assessed in a couple of lopsided prelims that went the distance. So yeah, Dan, this main event here, it actually... I don't know what you thought of it, but I thought it was at least an engaging fight. It was it was not a particularly close fight between Calvillo and I, but it, it was it was interesting. There was there was action. Yeah, it was better than expected. It was still fun to watch. You didn't you know you weren't falling asleep. No, no, no certainly not. There we've seen worse five round main events. Yeah, I thought Calvillo looked really good, and she paced herself. I was kind of worried about her gas tank, and she showed that she can go five rounds. I was less worried about that, you know. Her coming up in weight obviously helps a lot because she's not worried about, you know, the the big drain on her body just because of a weight cut. Now, it still takes someone to be in very good shape to go 25 minutes, you know, in a hard fight. And this had a decent pace to it. It wasn't labored. It wasn't super fast. But it, it was – they were moving around. So, yeah, credit to her. And she really – she did make just a fantastic splash at flyweight. Yeah, she jumped in and beats the number one contender in her first fight at the division. I mean, what more can you ask for? Nothing really, <laughs> you know, other than uh, maybe the the woman who called her out pretty much right away saying she wanted some, uh, Caitlin Chukagian. I'm down for that fight because I think the next title fight's probably Shevchenko and Calderwood. And I think doing Calvillo, Chukagian is the better fight to make instead of just throwing Calvillo straight into the, the title fight. Let her get another fight and another win under her belt. If she's going to be the contender, completely agree. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm not the biggest fan uh, of Jessica I's game for whatever reason. I just I've never really, you know, she's obviously an undeniable top 125 pounder, but kind of what she brings to the table hasn't always. I haven't always looked at it and said, okay, this is this is a real tough test here. But nonetheless, it is a big win. But you're right. I don't think they need to be rushing her off to be Chevchenko's next meal. You know, <laughs> let her develop a little bit more. There's no reason to rush this. I mean, even Chukagian is a is a, you know not a step up necessarily from from I. It's kind of the same level. These are the last two women to have fought Shevchenko, but it's a different animal. I think Chukagian. I know she lost to I, but I do think that on the whole, she's a tougher challenge for most fighters. I just that's what I think in my heart. You know, <laughs> I think she'll probably have a better ground game. She showed it off in her last fight. For sure. Um, I, I do think that's still Calvillo's world. If, if they want to bring it down there, that's going to be Calvillo's world for sure. But we did see some interesting, you know, striking from Calvillo here. She was able to hold her own and at times outperform eye on the feet. Yeah. I mean, that's what won her rounds. Uh, I think round two didn't go to the ground at all. She was able to win that, uh, rather, you know, easily in my eyes. And that was after losing the first round on all three judges cards and including us too. Yeah, we all we all had round one for Jessica I. There was some talk about people seeing that one for, for Calvio too, and I at least saw it as close enough that I could understand somebody giving first round to Calvio. But, yeah, I, I thought that was an I round. So the fact that you come back in round two and you definitely win that with the striking, that was impressive. 
Yeah, she definitely took the momentum from there, and I, I don't think she lost it the entire night. So where does this leave Jessica I, though? I mean, she's got to leave 125 pounds, right? This is now two in a row. She can't make weight. Yeah, I, I don't think 25 works for her anymore. At some point, your body just uh, rebels against you and refuses to make that weight. I think it's time to go up to 35, and we already know she's got a little bit of bad blood boiling with uh, Sajara Eubank, so maybe we make that happen. She seems to get bad blood going with a bunch of people. She's one of those people who seems to just get people mad at her. Maybe it's the evil eye that yeah, we're talking about, you know? She, she is definitely evil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm just a big proponent, as I always say, of fighters fighting at a more comfortable weight. So, you know, for her sake, for her own health's sake, I hope she does return to 135 pounds. I don't think she'd be totally out of her depth at 35. You know, when she was up there and losing fights, it was always pretty close uh, so I, I think she's certainly in the, the same ballpark as anybody who's at 135 pounds. Even if she doesn't win, you know, I think she still belongs there. So I hope that's where she settles in. Maybe she'll learn from her opponent who came up in weight class and looked really good. She'll say, oh, wow, you can go up in weight, forget about having the size advantage and perform well. I mean, I hope everybody thinks that. The, the one thing in, that's unique in I's case is the fact that she was already fighting at 35 in the UFC, and she was losing these fights. They were close losses, but she was losing. So she does come from a different background in that sense as saying, oh, you know, this wasn't working for me. I think I can get to 25, and I can do better. And sure enough, she did. You know, she worked her way to the title shot and, you know, cleanly lost in that devastating knockout but yeah she's got to leave here she needs to fight where she can make weight and make weight in a way where she can still stand how about that so while we're still on the subject of this fight actually let's segue into contested rounds the segment of course where we break down rounds that are very close for one reason or another you know maybe they could have been seen either way maybe a judge went one way uh, when other people saw it the other way uh, or maybe we disagreed where other people didn't, and we just kind of want to talk about it. So let's start with round five of Calvio I, a round that didn't really impact anything because Calvio was up 39 to 37 going into the final round, but only two of the judges saw it for Calvio, as you and I did. That was Derek Cleary and Sal Diamato, whereas Eric Colon went 10-9 for I. Now, what did you think of that? I definitely had her moments for sure. Uh, it was mainly towards the end of the round where she started landing some more impactful shots, but I thought Calvillo landed better throughout the entire round, and I thought she edged it, or at least definitely tilted it in her favor after the takedown with some ground and pound. See, I actually saw it as a really, really close round before that kind of final minute you were talking about, to the point where I actually was starting to give Ivy edge as she was finding momentum right before the takedown. So at that point, I was... Definitely seeing it as a very close, possibly going to eye. But after that takedown, yeah, you, you know, you had the ground and pound like you're talking about. She attacked with the Peruvian necktie, which she kind of fell off pretty quickly. But, um, you know, at least there was some offense there, some offensive attempts. Uh, and then, you know, she landed some decent shots when they stood back up. So I did edge it to Calvio. It was a close round. Even when it was announced as 48-47, I was a little confused. But when I kind of thought about it, I'm like, which round could be the one that was also given to I. I did say round five, so, you know, this it came to mind as the closest round next to round one that you could give to I. So I guess that makes sense. But, you know, I on the whole, I disagree. But really what we're talking about here is round five in a fight that 
it wasn't going to actually change the result anyway. So yeah, round five had no real major uh, implications of this fight anyway. For I to even muster a draw, she had to get a 10-8. To win the fight, she needed a 10-7. So we're talking about someone who was in finished territory. Even if she won the round, it didn't matter. So not a huge deal. Yeah, and if Calvillo finished that Peruvian necktie, I that would have been my favorite finish for every show going forward. <laughs> really? I wouldn't have never picked another one, at least until 2021. You know, I'm trying to think of Peruvian neckties in MMA. One, the one... Charlie Brenneman. Charlie Brenneman had one? I don't remember that. Not in the UFC. It was uh, after he got cut and fought in the CFFC. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I missed that one. I remember Charlie. You know, I know Charlie from training together with him. But the one that comes to mind was Pat Curran in Bellator about 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember this, but he hit one. And that was okay. the first time I remember seeing a Peruvian necktie. I'm, but yeah, close round on the whole. It's not egregious to go out here if you ask me. I just don't see it. So, But that that is what it is. So, yeah, we did disagree with Cologne on this round. But... I thought he had some really excellent scores earlier in the night, particularly in the two split decisions that we had here. So let's start with the first one, Charles Rosa against Kevin Aguilar. Round two was the swing here. You saw it for Rosa, right? Yeah, I definitely saw this one for Rosa because of pretty much the last 30 seconds. Aguilar was really winning most of that round, and then Rosa hits him with a you know, hits him with a heavy head kick and Aguilar's a little wobbled, hits him with a left and he gets wobbled again. And I'm like, wow, these are really impactful. I think he just stole that round. You know, I actually didn't think it was that far off for Rosa to begin with. I, I thought it was very back and forth, very close. You know, if you wanted to go Aguilar before that, that's okay. But I did see it as very close at that point. I think I was leaning Rosa when I'm watching live. I'm trying to remember. It's kind of hard to put your mind back into there, but I'm pretty sure... I saw it for Rosa at the beginning, but it was a really close one that I think he just absolutely took at the end with the sequence you're talking about. Dave Hagen went the opposite way in this round. He scored it for Aguilar. Yeah, whereas Cologne and Sal Diamato went for Rosa. But for Hagen, I was, I'm going to say it was a close round, like you said, and I, I thought Aguilar had it early for a while until that last sequence, but Rosa comes out bleeding from a sequence. Maybe Hagen doesn't know it's from a headbutt. Just he's oh wow this guy's bleeding he must have got hit with something. I already had it for Aguilar. Those last few shots didn't push it over for Rosa. I gotta go with Aguilar here. Now of course you're just speculating, but I actually have additional speculation to as to why maybe Hagen went that way. When Rosa lands that punch, especially in that in that final sequence you were talking about, mm -hmm. it looked like referee Mark Smith had crossed in front of Hagen's view. Now, it's hard to tell when you're watching at home, but we sit here and we try to figure out where the judges are seated when we're going through the evaluating of the rounds for, for this segment. And it really did look like Mark Smith might have crossed over just in time to have blocked the view of that punch. And it's possible he just didn't see it. I don't know. But when you're looking for explanations as to why that could be, that's something that makes sense. And I think it's something we ought to think about, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty. I think refs and cameramen they should all be made out of glass so the judges can see through them. <laughs> it really stinks that their view could be obstructed. I wish there was a way around it without using monitors. There's nothing you can do about a ref moving in front of it. I I do take issue with when it's the cameraman coming in the way. Obviously, the product is more important to the UFC than <laughs> than getting the win. Yeah, right the decision doesn't somehow, matter to but, them. Yeah. 
No, it really doesn't. But <laughs> you do wish they would at least do something to protect them a little bit more. You know, there was one section of the cage that I noticed at times nobody was seated there at one of the panels, and yet judges are always seated two out of the three by the door where there's an extra pole in the way or extra post in the way. Is that the panel where Dana's set back at his own table? No, I believe oh, okay. it was a second one. I mean, I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure it was a separate one. Okay. Um, but you might be right. I, I did see Dana in his red shirt sitting I mean, there. There's eight panels. You got, you use two for each guy's corner. You use one for the broadcast team, three for the judges. And then you got the two door panels, which you don't need to put anybody near. Yeah, I wish they wouldn't do that, but that's what they do, and they don't seem to really care all that much. Uh, but to get back to it, you know, I do see an argument for why Hagen would even go that way, even if he had a perfect view and could have gone the other way. Although, hey, maybe it was completely different than that. Maybe Dave Hagen is watching this fight on replay and saying, you know what, I still think it's for Aguilar. And I do understand the argument there, too. It's, it's, it's one I disagree with, but I do see it. Yeah, like I said, I had it for Aguilar early until that last sequence. Yeah, I disagree. But again, that speaks to how close this round was. So we did have that other split decision, though, of course, that we want to talk about. And that was Andre Feely getting the victory over Charles Jordan. Round two, again, the swing round here. And I had that for Feely, as did Eric Colon and Derek Cleary. How did you have that one? When I watched it live, I scored it for Jordan. Uh, but when I rewatched it, Earlier this afternoon, I switched to Feely 10-9. Okay. Okay, so you were feeling Feely. I felt he landed cleaner. Every time his strikes landed, he was getting a really strong negative reaction. He was, he was. And he was starting to, I mean, they, they pointed out on the broadcast, and to borrow their words, he was really sniping at that point. He's just flowing and finding the home with every shot. Every, every jab was going out there, and it was really stinging. Yeah, even the head kicks that were blocked were shooting Jordan three, four feet to the right or to the left, whichever like he was using. Now, I did think that this round was probably even closer than round two in the previous fight we were talking about. Maybe even the most challenging round to score of all night. So Ron McCarthy was the minority judge here who gave it to Jordan and thus giving him 29-28 in the fight. Yeah, I mean, I just want to make note that the takedown at the end from Feely meant nothing. I mean, nothing happened from it. I agree. I didn't factor that into my assessment either. They're not not anything noteworthy anyway. I, I just thought Feely won that outright. Um, but it was very, very, very close. So I can understand going the other way. It's, it's something I'm, I'm certainly not going to get on McCarthy for that one. Yeah, no, this isn't anything crazy. But again, I thought Feely won. The fact that he came out of this, the rightful winner, I think is great. And the common denominator between these two split decisions was the scorecards from Eric Cologne. So while we disagreed with him in the main event on that one round, which really didn't impact anything, he made the right call in two very close fights. So he gets a lot of points for that as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know, I also learned something in this fight. We didn't talk about this round, but round one, I learned that strikes that are blocked can still be considered effective. Oh, yes. Feely blocks a kick from Jordan and basically doesn't use his right arm for the rest of that round. Oh, yeah. That's no reason that can't be effective. So, I mean, that's something more in my mind now as where I used to just, oh, he blocked it, dismiss it. But you can see the uh, the effect from it. Ever since Rich Franklin broke his forearm blocking uh, 
Chuck Liddell's kick before he shortly thereafter knocked him out with it. I've been very aware of how powerful a blocked kick can still be. So I'm always mindful of that. But I'm glad you certainly caught on to that now. Yeah, and also because a lot of the kicks that Feely threw were blocked technically, but it still had a big negative effect on Jordan because he's getting pushed out of the way. has to reset and everything. My understanding of it is that all that matters is the result. It doesn't matter what happened in the lead-up, but if it causes a negative reaction, that's what's important. All right. There was also a few rounds that got scored 10-8s or were potential candidates for 10-8s, and we'd like to talk about those fights or those rounds in particular. Yeah, let's go to the 10-8 watch. Yeah, let's start with Marab Davilashvili versus Gustavo Lopez. Davilashvili ended up getting two 10-8 rounds on Michael Bell's card, and he got one 10-8 round on both Adelaide Bird and Saudi Amato's cards. Did you give any 10-8 rounds? Uh, not live, I didn't. I did give round three a 10-8 on rewatch. See, I actually watched it twice, and I still I can see an argument for 10-8. But I actually am sticking firm that it was all 10 nines here. Maybe this is controversial. Maybe I'm wrong. But but this, to me, I'm still sticking at 30-27 victory for me, Rob. Okay. So why don't we start with round two first? Yeah, let's do it. So it was a strong round for Marab, and I, I put it in a strong 10-9 category. Yeah, I would too. This would be in our scoring format in, in the couchside judges that we use for past judgment. I would call this a 10-8. Yeah, I think I would as well. He gets into this position, which I don't know if a lot of people understood. Even the commentators were just calling it uh, a neck crank. or And I think that was wrong. I don't want to call fighters wrong. I mean, they're professionals. but So there's that one point where Davalashvili passes to side control. And he switches to a scarf hold, which is basically a headlock like we saw. Right. He's, he's got a headlock. It looks like that Lopez can easily take his back, but with all the weight that's on Lopez, it, it's very tough to do that. So that what they were calling a neck crank was actually a, a diaphragm choke, where all the weight is on your chest, and then you lift the person's head up, and now it compresses your diaphragm. It is brutal to be stuck in this. It's really, it's more of a catch wrestling technique. I believe it. That seems like catch wrestling. Because since your diaphragm is basically immobilized it's near impossible to get air in it's it's one of, it's probably my least favorite things to be stuck in it's absolutely horrible and i think that should have at least been scored heavier or at least as a really solid sub attempt okay and then he switches to the scarf hold arm bar which he's using his legs and i thought that was a really strong attack as well you know it's funny because obviously these were good attacks and i think that they were attacks that on the surface seem to meet kind of those three D's that we're talking about, damage, dominance, and duration. But it was really out of this whole five minutes of the round, it was really the only time that you saw a sustained duration of damage and dominance from Devalashvili. It seemed like the rest of it was very kind of pot shoddy and, and taking his time and that kind of thing. This was the main reason I moved away from 10-8 to a 10-9, even though, you know, I kind of wish that I would call that a 10 Eight, but it really did seem like a 10-9 based on the criteria to me. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't confident putting 10-8 for this round. But if you saw it as a 10-8, I'm okay with it. I really thought Lopez had a solid guillotine attack towards the end of the round. Duvalishvili had to 
defend it and his face he was wincing a little bit during it so i i definitely scored that pretty high sure and and of course bell was the minority judge who went the 10-8 here you know you can see the argument of course um but yeah i, I sided with bird and damato but round three this is the one where you ended up going 10-8 right yeah on the rewatch i ended up going 10-8 i thought he checked all all three d's i did think it was a much better argument for a 10-8 here but i still went 10-9 uh, and the reason being duration in particular, once again, it just seemed Devalshvili was in a good spot and then would let up the position or he'd lose it. So it was kind of a, you, you, you want him to see, you want to see more of that, right? Yeah, I definitely, I thought he had the duration. I thought he was dominant throughout the whole round. I thought he was causing damage throughout the whole round. Yeah, hey, I, I could be wrong. You know, we're, we're not trained. You know, we, we are learning as, as well as anybody at home probably is. Hopefully better because... Well, hopefully not better. I hope everybody's learning, but we're still learning. And yeah. I am quick to point out how little I still know about this world. That's you got to be. You got to be humble. Yeah, and there was also a point where I think really could have finished in this round. There's a, he gets Kamara laced around his arm, steps around. If this wasn't MMA, he'd be attacking the armbar. But because he's allowed to throw strikes, he decided to throw hammer fist. I thought interesting strategy that plays nothing in my mind. Or in any judge's mind, it shouldn't. But uh, I think he could have. Fin- he think he could have finished there. All right. Yeah. I mean, coulda, woulda, shoulda. We can't really assume right. one way or the other. But uh, you know, it, again, this was another round that even though I didn't go to the ten eight range, I would say in our scoring system, that's an easy ten eight as opposed to a ten seven. So you know, I certainly wouldn't have had to agonize over anything if it was for that. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I don't know. I'm, maybe I'd have to do a little agonizing. Okay. That's fair. But why don't we move on to Jordan Espinoza versus Mark De La Rosa? Yeah, absolutely. This was the other fight in which we had one 10-8 score here. And that was for round three. And that came from Sal Amato for Espinoza. Now, Espinoza won all three rounds here. This was just like Devalishvili. It was no contest, essentially, as to who won. Did you end up going 10-8 in round three? No, kept it 10-9. Okay, yeah, I did too. You know, I sided with uh, Bell here and uh, Tony Weeks. I thought they had it right. But round one, when I first watched it, I thought that was a 10-8. Although I've come off of that since. And I think that was just a 10 I agreed with you live that it was a 10-8. But I changed my mind as well. Following me through. Yeah, I think I think we made the right call retreating off of that and just calling it a 10-9 just as all three judges did. It was such a... A unique round. It was kind of interesting, yeah. He stuck against the cage in a single leg, defending what seemed like the entire round. It was, it was at least the last two minutes or so, yeah. And he just kept hitting him with punches and elbows, and I was like, this has got to be a 10-8. I mean, the other guy's not doing anything. Yeah, the reason I went 10-8 was because it seemed he hit the damage duration and dominance in that whole package as far as that sequence. But as I rewatched it, up until that point, Espinosa, he's just kind of landing hard jabs and getting out. They're really hard jabs, but you just didn't see him putting anything together. And I think what their judges seem to be looking for when they're looking to go for 10-8s and that kind of thing is they do want to see you put things together. They want to see you sustain it and put more in there. You know, I also, on the second watch, I didn't think those strikes were all that impactful when he was against the cage. Didn't seem to have that much of, a, of an effect on De La Rosa. A lot of times when guys eat some heavier shots, their reaction is, you know, to get a little more urgent with their takedown attempt. 
it seemed like De La Rosa was just content to just stay there. Yeah, I I disagree. I do. I really did seem like they were hard enough that they were doing some damage. The elbows. Yeah, the elbows in particular was what stood out for me. Not all the punches, especially to the body, those kind of things. But the elbows were, I mean, they were pretty much elbows uh, as far as I'm concerned. So those sequences that we saw, those were what initially made me jump to the 10-8. But I probably jumped to conclusions on that one. And I think you agree, right? Yeah, for sure. But let's talk a little bit more around, about round three. We kind of circled away from it. Let's just kind of put ourselves in the shoes of D'Amato here. You know, why why might he have gone 10-8 as opposed to 10-9 as Bell and Weeks did? I mean, Espinosa, no argument. He clearly won the round. But I, in my eyes, I didn't think he had the domination aspect down. I didn't think he checked that box. Yeah, for me, you know, he had that Darce attempt. Maybe that put it over for D'Amato. I mean, that was it, just like a hold him in there. Yeah, it was, it really wasn't the strongest attack. It didn't lead to a ton. Other you know, he had to account for it. He was defending it very well, uh, De La Rosa. But you know, that's his world. He knows what to do down there. And uh, yeah, I, I just didn't see it crossing over into that territory very strongly, even watching live. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a cut and dry ten nine. I don't, I don't, I just don't see the ten eight. But I do think you can go ten eight in our system, though. It's potentially there. Yeah, yeah. That's why I want more. I, I want them to. I would love to see the ABC one day cut down on the wide range of ten nines and split it off. And somehow it doesn't have to be the way we do it, but I would just yeah. love to see that wide range split up in some meaningful way because it just seems a little too wide. See, I wouldn't mind if ten tens for one percent of rounds, and then you get ten seven for another percent of the round, and then it's forty eight percent. 10-9, and then the other 48%, 10-8. I think 10-9 and 10-8 should be a rather similar gap. Like, right now, 10-8s are pretty narrow, and 10-9 is really wide. I see what your point is. I've actually kind of come away from the idea that we really need to give 10-10s. You know, I, I, I think you really can find a winner, even if it's by a slim margin. But if you are spreading out the scoring as we are trying to do... Typically, it's not going to make that big a difference. You're going to have more variety in the type of scores and final scores that are coming out. So I think that will negate the need for you know saying, oh, this this fight was so close, we had to give it to somebody because it was just so close and it felt tough to give it that way. Because oftentimes, as we see when we go back at these fights, we're seeing 10-8s and things like that. But I don't know what the percentage necessarily should be. I think probably... 10-9 and 10-8 should be very close in terms of how often they're given out. I don't want to see a 49-49 split, but it should be close-ish. And then 10-7s would be what we kind of see as 10-8s right now. So, you know, what is that, 10% of rounds? I yeah. think that's okay. Thanks for correcting my math. I was trying to make it easier on myself. That's, oh. <laughs> that's why I added a 10-10 at 1%. I mean, I, I was just trying to make it easy on myself. I don't care. Uh, I don't I care. Put it at zero. Put it at zero percent. Yeah. All right. So zero zero percent ten ten, and then one percent ten seven, and then I'd like to see the rest given to ten nine and ten eight. Uh see, no, I would. I would still say I want like ten percent of them to be those ten sevens because I think we're, in my eyes, we're shifting the idea of what a ten eight is and just calling it a ten seven. So whatever percentage we see ten yeah, tens given out now, that's what it really should continue to be. But then the vast majority of these other rounds that are. What is it? Probably ninety percent. I'm, you know, putting a ballpark figure in there. I'm going to study that one day because I love data. But you know, let's let's just ballpark it at ninety percent of rounds being ten 
nines, it shouldn't be that way. It, it should definitely be split in some sort of way, whether it's, you know, two thirds to one third or 60, 40 or 50, yeah. 50. I don't know. Just I don't care. It just needs to be something. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's make it a little better. You know, we added some weight classes along the way in this sport. And I wouldn't say you end up coming up with a system of scoring rounds that gives you all the way down to, you know, 10 to one. That's crazy. But I think you can use the numbers that we have, which are 10, 9, 10, 8, 10, 7, and spread it out a little more equally. That's what I think. Yeah, there's always room for improvement. And I, I think over the years, we'll, we'll see some uh, improvement to it. I hope so. Even if it's not our idea, I just want I just want the, to see better reflections of what happens in the fight. A little more variety. Yeah, I think, I think that's what we all want. I just want to point out that when we watch these, we're watching it through the current criteria. And of course, it's hard. It's hard for me to to say, oh, what would I have gone in our criteria? Because I, I didn't watch it with that in mind. But for some of it's them, true. It, for, for some of them, it's a, it's a bit easier. But these these closer rounds, I uh, have some time struggling to try to decide on that. And there's no need to. That's not what we're judging it for. You know, it, it's more just kind of in my head. I'm like, you know, I wonder if that would be kind of a 10-8 or 10-7 yeah. in our system. You know, I don't have to be held accountable for that. Right, <laughs> we're, yeah. just, we're just we're just talking here and, uh, and doing thought experiments, essentially. So, uh, But, but yeah, I, I, sometimes I do kind of think in my head, you know, hey, what would this be in our system? You know, we always grade it in the way it should be in the ABC system, but you think about what it could be in ours. Hey, you know, I love talking about our scoring system, but of course we are, like we said, grading these rounds on the ABC system. And I think we've pretty much covered the rounds we needed to talk about. So let's just talk about the finishes. You know, we had five first round finishes, three inside of a minute. So it was pretty wild for a while, right? Yeah, the judges were looking at, wow, this is going to be a quick night. We don't got to turn in any scorecards. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Some of them had a pretty easy night as a result. But, but Dan, what was your favorite finish of the night? Uh, Maria Agapova, rear naked choke over Hannah Cyphers. I knew you would pick that. When we were going over this, I knew you would pick Hannah Cyphers' fight. But not because I want to pick on Hannah Cyphers as much as uh, I have in the past. But she came up a weight class. Agapova was super aggressive. She was pummeling her with strikes and basically overwhelmed Cypher so much that she just huddled up and Agapova just jumped on her back and choked her. Instead of finishing with strikes, she decided to go for the sub, and I loved it. Of course you did. <laughs> you love your subs. I love subs too, but for me, it was the 32-second knockout by Tyson Nam. I found it so crazy that... You know how UFC puts the tweets on the screen mid-fight? Yeah. Which yes, makes no that. sense to me. It draws attention away from the fight. I don't like it either. A lot of them were saying, don't sleep on Adeshev. This guy's got a world of uh, kickboxing experience and glory. K1 kickboxing champion. And then next thing you know, he's flattened in 32 seconds. It's like, wow. I mean, your tweets did not age well at all. <laughs> hey, I've been there. I can understand that. But yeah, knocking out Zaruk Yadashev, you know, regardless of his credentials, that was a big knockout. You know, it just landed that massive counter right hook to the jaw. You know, when Adashev was going for that low kick, and it just he was so vulnerable at that point. Immediately shuts the lights out. He even got that last uh, big ground shot before Herb Deeb could sprint into action. And Herb, I mean, he really exploded to get over there as fast as he, he could. He, he was just kind of out of position. Yeah, he, credit to him. He was doing what he could. But, you know, I mean, who really expects that 32 seconds in, all of a sudden just this counter boom shot at 135 pounds ends it? Yeah, I 
totally was thinking that. I was like, is Herb going to get there before he lands his second shot? And well, he landed it, but <laughs> that's all right. I mean, it hey, you know what? That's that's Nam's job. He did exactly what he had yep. to do. You know, Nam's been on my radar for a long time after he had that upset victory over Eduardo Dantas, the former Bellator 135-pound champ, somehow fighting outside of Bellator as their champion, and he loses. It was like the stupidest thing ever. Um, but he's been on my radar a long time. The fact that he's in the UFC now and he finally gets this really awesome win, you could see it on his face. He was very emotional about it, and I was really happy to see him get the victory. A win like this, he he really needed it. He absolutely did, and now he's going to stick around a while. You know, you don't lose, you don't win a fight in 32 seconds by a thunderous KO, and then nope. get cut in your next fight unless something crazy happens. So, yeah, nope. good for him. There's a little job security there. So, what about grading these judges for the evening? Let's get to lest ye be judged. UFC Apex Two Edition. Who was your top judge? I thought I had almost everybody. I mean, my standouts were Mike Bell, Adelaide Bird, Derek Cleary, Eric Colon was good. I mean, they were all good. I just I don't have anyone that I could even decide on who I disagreed most with. I just I thought everybody did great. I I got really well, well, who, but who stood out? Who was who was the cream of the crop? I got to go Mike Bell, I guess. Okay. Mike, yeah, Mike Bell is my top guy. For me, it was it was an easy call actually. I went with Derek Cleary. I agreed with all eight of the rounds he turned in. Uh, he nailed the 49-46 score for Calvillo and the 29-28 for Feely. So the fact that he hit on one of the closest fights of the night and on the main event, you know, that's how much better can you do with, you know, a thinner weight on you because of how many first-round finishes we had, you know? Yeah, I guess. Did eight rounds he turned in. That's more than most of these other judges that had to turn in. Yeah, absolutely. It was usually usually eight is not too high, but on this particular occasion, it was the third most rounds scored. So maybe I mean you do eight for eight, you, you're pretty good. I think so. But yeah, I would say Eric Cologne again. Even disagreeing with him in the main event, I thought he had an excellent night. Tony Weeks, he got his one uh, fight that he had to actually judge any rounds for. He nailed all three in that one too. So credit to you, Tony. If I have to pick a judge, I'm. I don't even want to say I pick a bone with because I, I agree. They did a great job. But Dave Hagen is the one who I would guess I would single out just because I didn't see Rosa Aguilar as close as I did Feely Jordan. So, you know, I, I outlined why I could see Hagen giving it that way. It's really not that egregious to have gone that way. But fortunately, it went the other way. Um, you know, I, I would say if I had to give him a grade, Dave Hagen gets a what a, a B, you know. How terrible is that? I think he had a good night overall, just not as good as some of his colleagues. Right, yeah. And in that fight, you know, you mentioned, you know, the ref passes in front of him. I mentioned that Rosa comes out of an exchange bleeding from the head. You know, a lot of variables there. Absolutely. But, again, credit to all the judges. They've been, honestly, just fantastic the last three events, all of them at UFC Apex. And, you know, they keep bringing in the same – judges we've had Sal Amato every time we've had Eric Colon every time you know we've seen you know Mike Bell most of these times Ron McCarthy a bunch of times Dave Hague and Derek Cleary you know these are the usual suspects and they're doing a great job Adelaide Bird like you said she she did a good job too she, she nailed uh, the same way I scored Devalishvili and Lopez That's- everyone's doing a fantastic yeah. job there you know keep it up ladies and gentlemen you're, you're doing great 
That about does it for this episode of the Couchside Judges. Scott and I will be back at the end of the week with another look ahead to more fights at UFC Apex, this time with a more attractive lineup of fights, at least on paper. We'll also have a past judgment for you, looking back at an older fight and applying our system after taking a break from the segment the past few episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Couchside Judges, as well as myself at Dan Urban MMA. Follow me on Twitter also at Scott underscore Fontana. Please subscribe to our show, and as always, stay healthy and safe. See ya!